0: So good to have the kids in worship with us this morning. Um, it's always a delight. And as I look out over your faces, um, it's, I wish you could get this perspective to see the body of Christ gathered together to worship the Lord Um, and to sit in the front row and hear all the voices behind me. um, I just have to believe that God is enthroned in heaven with a smile on his face when he hears the voices of his people uh, singing praises to his name. And uh, maybe the, the only thing that gives him greater glory is, is when his word is preached and we apply it to our lives and we are transformed and conformed to the image of his son. So I uh, want to welcome you this morning, especially if you are a first-time guest. We uh, would invite you to stop back to the hub at the end of the service. We'd love to meet you and uh, provide you any information about the church, any answer any questions that you may have. Uh, certainly we would love the opportunity for you to get to know us as well we are in the midst of a series in the book of Ephesians and we've made it past the halfway point but we still have several weeks to go and if you weren't with us last week or even if you were we saw that at the start of chapter 4 that one of the marks of a healthy church is unity 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 of the spirit that we are to maintain uh, in the bond of peace. And praise God, we don't have to create unity. We simply have to maintain it. We we have to keep it. And, and we do so um, because we already have it. I love uh, with what Johnny Erickson Tata said, believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. Um, this, is, this is incredible because that's the hard part, is acting like it. Paul told us in the first few verses of chapter 4 that, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another translation says that we are to uh, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And we do so as we live our lives in a, in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And uh, we talked about that last week. What what does it mean to live a life that is worthy? And there were four things that particularly jumped out at us, is that we are to do this with all humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love for one another. And then in verses 4 through 6, Paul gives us what many believe to be an early Christian creed. Seven one statements that speak to our unity as as God's church. He says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. So this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 7, and verse 7 is interesting because it seems to be introducing something completely new, a new thought, if you would, And, and and it does so somewhat abruptly, too. And it it just seems to come out of nowhere. Just follow with me. Paul just finished the seven one statements after talking about unity and walking in a manner worthy of his calling. And then he says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, it first glance, that verse may seem to be out of place, but it actually connects the preceding verses with the verses that follow in a marvelous way. And uh, before we dive into this, let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you um, for your word. Lord God, we come before you as a needy people. Lord, we confess that apart from you taking the initiative, apart from you um, coming to earth and dying for our sins, Lord, we would be undone. And unless you had revealed yourself to us in your coming and through your word, we would not know you. We wouldn't really know ourselves and lord as we look at this passage this morning there is so much that you want to teach us about yourself about ourselves and about your church holy spirit we pray that you would be our teacher this morning as we look at these few short verses and it's in jesus name that we pray amen that is why the scripture says when he ascended To the heights he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who has descended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. We're going to cover those verses again. But um, thank you, kids, for reading God's word to us an admirer of, um, of the famous celebrated uh, composer orchestra conductor leonard bernstein asked this question said what was the hardest instrument to play he replied without hesitation second fiddle I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, we have no harmony. You see, to sound great, individual musicians can't be in competition with each other. They can't try to outdo the other. They have to play together. Each person has to do their part. They have to play to the best of their ability so that the whole orchestra benefits. And the same thing is true in the church. For there to be harmony or unity in the body, every member has to play their part. Every member has to do it to the best of their ability. Everyone can't be first fiddle. Now, when you think of unity, sometimes maybe we think that everything is just kind of bland. Everything's the same, but unity does not mean uniformity. In fact, for a church to be truly healthy, there must be diversity. And that's the second mark of a healthy church that Paul gives us here in chapter 4. And he's not talking about racial diversity. He's not talking about socioeconomic diversity. He's not talking about diversity of age. What he's talking about here is a diversity of gifts. Each one of us are to use the various gifts that we have been given to build up the body of Christ and to bring God glory and I and this morning I want there I I want there to be no mistake about what I want you to go away with make no mistake you have been gifted to serve you have been gifted to serve now the verses that we're looking at today are actually one of three key passages on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. The other two, if you want to jot them down, is Romans 12, verses 4 through 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, and, uh, and there's, there's a lot of verses there. Um, and, and there's also in 1 Peter 4 a mention of spiritual gifts too, but the main ones are here in Ephesians, Romans, and in 1 Corinthians so let's begin by looking back at verse 7, if you would. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, if you've been tracking with us in the series in Ephesians, you know we've been talking a lot about grace. We have defined grace, but by way of reminder, it comes from the Greek word charis which literally means um, unmerited favor, kindness, gift, if you would. And the context here makes it very clear that Paul is not talking about saving grace. That's a particular kind of grace. It's the grace in which we uh, receive salvation. We are saved by God's unmerited favor. Here, Paul is talking about ministry grace, or grace for serving. It refers to the believer's God-given calling and supernatural ability to serve or to do ministry not to be confused with natural gifts or talents. Now, this isn't really a message on the spiritual gifts per se, so we're not going to get too deep into it. But each of us are born with certain abilities and talents. Um, But when we come to faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that we receive a spiritual gift by God's grace. In fact, the word grace means gift. And all of the gifts... Are gifts for serving God gives it to us for this very reason now I want you to think about what Paul said over in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 because he gives us an example he says to me though I am the very least of the saints this grace was given what to be saved no to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul is referring to this grace that he received, this gift which enabled him then to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The Lexham Bible Dictionary defines spiritual gifts as ministries or abilities that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians for the edification of the church. Another Bible dictionary puts it this way, that these are special gifts bestowed by God on individual members of the Christian community for the edification or the building up of the whole community. And these gifts flow from God. They flow from his grace to every believer. Now, I want you to notice something on the screen on verse 7. The phrase, to each one of us. You see that? To each one of us. This is where I come away with, you have been gifted to serve. Every born-again child of God has received at least one spiritual gift that is to be used in service of Christ and his church. Paul says, to each one of us, we have received a gift. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10... Um, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, the idea is, as we have received, meaning we have received, use it to serve one another. So the phrase says, but to each of us was given, or by grace was given to each of us, according to the measure of christ's gift now i take that to understand that it suggests that it's the lord who portions out or dispenses gifts to his children as he wills in his wisdom for his purposes Now, I want to give you a word of caution here, especially in our day and age, not not so much here at New Life, but in some circles anyway, there's a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, But I want you to to notice something, that when you look at this passage, when you look at 1 Corinthians, when when you look at Romans, that... All three persons of the Trinity are involved with spiritual gifts. In in 1 Corinthians, we're we're told that the the, the Holy Spirit gives these gifts as he wills. But here in Ephesians, it says it's Christ that gives the gifts. And in Romans, we see it's the Father who gives the gifts. So the, the Trinity is intricately involved in gifting God's people to serve. Let's take a look at verse 8. Notice in verse 8, it says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul is actually referring back to Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a, um, a psalm of, of victory. It's a, it's a prayer, actually, of God's people that he would deliver them as he has delivered them in the past. And he applies it to Christ. So let me continue reading. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. As I mentioned, Psalm 68 is a psalm of victory, and it was typical for victorious kings when they came back from battle that they would bring with them the spoils of war, and as they came back to their own country, to the cities in which they reigned, they oftentimes would divide the spoils, and they would give some of it to the people, to his people. And that's the picture that Paul is giving us here of Jesus, because these kings took of their conquests and of their captives, and they divided and shared with their own. Paul sees the ascension and the incarnation as a picture of Jesus, in a sense, coming from heaven to earth to wage war against Satan and in so doing, he is mortally wounded. But in the process of dying on the cross, he also crushes Satan's head. And three days later, he rises from the dead, victorious over sin and death and in his ascension in his return having defeated satan he gives gifts to his children that's the picture that paul is giving to us here now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4 we're told and paul himself says it that there are a variety of gifts there are a diversity of gifts But here in Ephesians, he only mentions a few special gifts. And there's something about these gifts that set them apart from all the other gifts. They are unique, not in that they are supernatural abilities, because the other gifts are that way too. What makes them unique is that these God-given gifts are people. God gave certain people to the church as a gift. I'm going to try to unpack that for you. So let's take a look at verse 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I am absolutely certain of this. I I did not take a poll this morning. I didn't go to Pastor Ryan or Pastor Eric and ask this question. But I think I would be safe to say that all three of us um, would agree that it is quite humbling to think of ourselves as God's gift to you, as the body. In, in the same way that I find it extremely humbling to think that I am God's gift to my wife. Because there's a part of me that feels like she could have done a whole heck of a lot better. <laughs> but that's what the text is saying here that there are certain people that God has given to the church as gifts to the church. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but keep in mind it is not because we are so wonderful, so talented, or so good-looking. That may be true, but it's not the reason why. He has called us to Himself. He has called us to serve Him. He has gifted us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and he has placed us in the body exactly where he wants us. We are simply endeavoring to do what we're told to do in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, with that being said, let's, let's look at these people gifts for just a moment here. The first one that's mentioned is that of apostles. The Greek word is apostolos. It literally means uh, a sent one, uh, a messenger, or an envoy. Uh, It sometimes can also uh, be translated uh, uh, an ambassador. And in the New Testament, the word apostolos is used in three different ways. One of the ways that it's used is in reference to you and me in general. Uh, in fact in John chapter 13 verse 16 Jesus says truly truly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him the word messenger there is the term apostolos so in a sense and we know that Jesus said as the father has sent me I am sending you so in one sense we're all apostles in that we have been sent, that we are God's messengers. But there's another way that this word is used. It's used for those who are actually sent out from churches as missionaries or messengers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, we read, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, plural, they are messengers, apostolos, of all the churches, the glory of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. You see, it can be applied more specifically to a certain group of people, but I believe the way in which Paul is referring to it here is actually the third way, and that is a very small group of people that Christ personally chose and authorized to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. This would include the 11 disciples plus Matthias, who um, was brought in after the defection of Judas. It would include James, the the brother of Jesus. It would include Paul, perhaps one or two others. And I think that's what this this reference is, um, is really speaking about. And in this sense, there are no more apostles. Some people may claim that title today. But there is nobody alive today that witnessed the ministry of Jesus. There's nobody that witnessed his resurrection or his ascension. And according to Acts chapter one, that is one of the requirements to be an apostle. So in that sense, there is no apostolic succession. The apostles held a very special office and God used them uh, to to, to help establish the church, but they weren't alone in that. There's a second group, a second gift that's mentioned here, and that is of prophets. And we'll get to that in just a second. Look at this verse just two chapters earlier here in Ephesians. But you, speaking of the church, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So he lists apostles and prophets as being foundational to the church. And, it, and, and really, when you think about it, there was no Bible, there was no New Testament until the apostles wrote the words that God would have them write, and it was codified and and brought into the canon of Holy Scripture. And so the need was there for the apostles and the prophets, just as in the Old Testament, to establish the church. But they were built on the foundation of Christ himself. Now having said that, we actually have something even better than the apostles. We have the apostles' words. I've read some of them to you this morning. And it doesn't matter where you go on the face of this earth, their teaching, which is ultimately God's teaching, can be heard by everyone everywhere. While the apostles were on this earth, while even Christ was on this earth, they were limited to be in one place at one time. So there is no need for the apostolic office as held by the apostles. The church was established in the first century, and the apostles' words have been recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And their ministry continues today through the preaching of his word. Now, missionaries and church planters, and perhaps others like them, would probably be the people most... Uh, like the apostles in that they go into parts of the world where maybe the gospel has never been heard to establish churches or maybe they go to a particular part of the city where there's a real need to establish a Bible-believing church and so missionaries and church planters today carry on a ministry similar to that of the apostles but they are not apostles they're missionaries or church planters Let's look at the second group, the prophets. Paul puts prophets second in this list, as he does in 1 Corinthians 12, indicating that they too were foundational to the establishment of the church. But as with the apostles, their office no longer continues. And there is no longer a need for them. And you have to understand, in the Old Testament, the the prophet was the mouthpiece of God. They oftentimes would hear from God, receive visions from God, and they were to speak the words of God. They were not to add to God's word. They were not to detract from God's word. And in fact, if you took away or added something or spoke saying, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord didn't send you, well, we'll just say God took a very dim view of that. It would not have been a good thing. People drop dead for doing that. That's why we, we, we need to be really careful in some circles. and I don't want to go there, but, but I could tell you some stories, things that, you know, you know thus saith the Lord. Boom, there it is. And it's like, whoa. It's either of God or it's not of God. If, if it is of God, then, wow, we've got new revelation, so we need to start adding it to the Scripture And if it's not, then similar to what is said in the Old Testament that these prophets went and prophesied, but I did not send them. They have prophesied out of the vain imagination of their own hearts. We're told in Scripture, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. In the book of Revelation, we read, then everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in, his, in this book. We need to be real careful. God has already spoken. We have his word. We are to faithfully proclaim and preach the word of God. The canon of scripture are complete. But let me back up a little bit because just as there are people today with apostolic like gifts i believe that there are some people with prophetic like gifts um let me try to describe what what i think maybe this might look like and by the way even in the new testament the the prophets weren't the prophets that are referred to in the new testament weren't, weren't prophesying new teaching um, they were more of forth tellers proclaiming the God's word in a particular way. But, but there are some people today who I believe have a special gift of exposition or insight into God's word. They are able to, and, and you probably heard some of them, they're, they're able to expound God's word in a way that just almost seems Uncanny but it's God giving the insight. There are some who, when they preach, their words pierce our hearts and bring us to a point of conviction of sin. There are some who possess, I think, a keen understanding of the world in which we live. They understand the signs of the times, and they have a fearless resolve to speak out against injustice and societal sins. Now, I can't can't prove that from Scripture, but, but I believe as I look out at the landscape, there are some people who have a specific gifting to be able to do these things in a way that someone, let's say, such as myself, is not able to do. Now, you may never have thought about this, but the church, by its very nature, is prophetic. In some ways, you have a prophetic ministry. Folks, we know how the story ends. We we know what's going to happen in the future. It has been revealed to us. And we are charged to proclaim the gospel to people who are perishing. We, 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 We inform them of eternity and what is awaiting them. That there is a heaven. That there is a hell. And that Christ is the only way to the Father. In a sense, when we proclaim the gospel, it's a prophetic ministry because we preach with the end in mind. And one day Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. The third group that we see here is that of evangelists. Now, the word evangelist only appears three times in the New Testament. It appears here it appears also in the book of Acts talking about Philip, and it appears in Second Timothy talking about Timothy. Now, evangelists are people who are called and gifted to preach the gospel to those who are not yet Christian. Now, we're all called to do that, so what sets them apart? Well, it seems that they have a special ability to make the gospel clear, to make it plain, and to lead people to Jesus. Of course, Billy Graham's probably the first name that pops into your mind, but there have been many evangelists. You know, I mentioned two already: Philip, Timothy. Um, there's, there's others. And what's interesting is the evangelist himself is a gift, but he has the gift of evangelism. But. But understand something, just because you have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean you're an evangelist, because you can neglect the gift. You know, the parable of the talents gives us a good picture. It said we can waste the talents that God gives to us. Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift that was given to you. It is possible to be gifted By God, which we all are, and yet neglect the gift. You're not an evangelist unless you're using the gift of evangelism. Now, this brings us to the last group, the shepherds and the teachers. Now, some of your translations may say pastor and teacher, or pastors and teachers. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where the word pastor occurs. In the English only place And this section of scripture is sometimes known as the fourfold or fivefold ministry and the reason why is that there appear to be five people mentioned here the Apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and teachers do you notice something different with the last two from the first three that are mentioned let me see if I can stress it for you. The apostles or the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. What's missing? The word the. It's missing the definite article in the Greek in front of teachers which has led many people to refer to this as the fourfold ministry meaning that paul is actually talking about one person one type of person the pastor slash teacher some people refer to this as the fivefold ministry seeing teachers as being distinct from the pastors all pastors are called to teach not all teachers are called to pastor and so I'm going to let you wrestle with that and do some study on your own. I love leaving a little bit of tension for people um, when I preach. But uh, whether it's fourfold, fivefold ministry, that's what Paul has in mind here. And, and the word pastor in the English Standard Version is translated appropriately, shepherds. And the term is synonymous or equal to that of elder or bishop or overseer so when you're reading in the new testament and you come across those words it's talking about the same office or the same role and responsibility is that elders are pastors pastors are elders they are overseers and this also is a clue as to their job description. They are to preach and teach the Word. They're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and instruction. And most importantly, they are to serve as examples to the flock of how God wants them to live. Now, if I were to ask you, whose job is it to equip believers, what would you say? You can speak up. Not a rhetorical question. What would you say? Anybody dare to answer that question? I heard pastors, pastors, pastors. That's exactly what I used to think. I, I, even though I did not grow up in a Protestant church, my understanding was it, it's the job of the pastor to equip the saints, right? Is that what this text says? No. It doesn't. If you look at it, it's, it says God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teacher to the church. For what purpose? It's right there in the text to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's not just the pastor's job. To what end? For the building up of the body of Christ. Where are all the kids? Kids, raise your hand. Let me see where, where are you all sitting. All right, keep, keep your hands back up. Keep them up. If you have played on a sports team, keep your hand up. Okay? What sports team do you, you play on? Yeah. Football. Soccer. Cheer. Okay. Yeah. What are, you, what are you playing? Baseball. Yeah. yeah. Football. Football, Really? Little Audrey plays football. Ooh, all right. You guys can put your hands down now. I, it, it's, it's great to see you guys all playing in various sports. Let, let's pick on you baseball players for a moment. What would it be like if all of a sudden you went to your baseball game and as your team um, was the home team, you get to take the field first. And instead of everybody running to various places on the field, everybody runs out to the pitcher's mound. Is there a problem with that? Of course. Everybody can't be the pitcher, pitcher, Right. You, you, need, you need a third baseman and a shortstop and a first baseman and a left fielder and, and a catcher and all of that. If everybody tried to be the pitcher or anything, you, you wouldn't have a team. You, you'd lose pretty badly and pretty quickly. To be a good baseball team, you need players to play various positions, including catcher. I hated playing catcher. Any of you ever play catcher? I hated catcher. I was always afraid I was going to get a bat to the back of my head, you know, because you're standing close to the guy, right? And he swings and that back can come around. And I've seen it happen. On top of that, when that ball is coming at you from the, from the pitcher, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, you know, I want to do that. Just protect myself. That's how I broke my nose. I broke my nose. I had two surgeries because I took a softball right there. So I know what I'm talking about. I don't want to be a catcher. But to have a baseball team and a good one, you got to have a catcher. Someone who's good at it. Well, the same thing is true in the church. It takes all the gifted people that are listed here in Ephesians and elsewhere using their unique giftings in order to have a healthy, unified church. And again, I realize that the office of apostle and prophet uh, no longer exists, but I would argue that there are some with apostolic and prophetic type-like gifts that the church still needs today. We still need missionaries to take the gospel to unreached people groups. We still need people to stand up and speak truth to those in power and authority. We still need people with the gift of evangelism so that there will always be new believers brought into the church where they can be taught and brought to maturity by shepherds and teachers. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment what it would be like if all the leaders in the church we're all gifted evangelists in apostolic types. Can you pitch that for a moment? Your leadership in this church, and, and if you want to say Paul, Ryan, and, and, and Eric, you know, that our main gifts were evangelism or the, some type of apostolic ministry, what would our church look like? There would probably be an awful lot of people who have been recently saved, but whose spiritual depth is like this. Why? Because the nature of an evangelist is to bring people to Jesus, to get them saved. They're just beginning their journey in Christ. And the, the, the missionaries, the apostolic types, the church planters, it's, it's, an, it's also an outward kind of focus. We need to go. We need to be involved out there. We need to go overseas. We need to plant a church over here. And so what would happen, I think, in a church like that is that you would have very little discipleship going on. You'd have lots of people, perhaps, who have come to faith in Christ, but their their maturity would be almost non-existent. What about about if a church was led by a prophetic type? Somebody who loves to rail against sin, social injustice, whatever. You'd be walking out of church like this every week, right? (laughs) I mean, you could only handle so much of that. And then what about the pastor teacher? If if the church on, only has those gifts present, what would that church look like? I think it would look something like this. You'd have a church that is well fed. They would know a lot of Bible. But they would look like the Pillsbury Doughboy or the Michelin Man, okay? That is not how God designed us. I think, I believe that it takes all of these gifts together in some way, fashion, or form to have a healthy church to have a unified church so that there is a balance between feeding the sheep and caring for the sheep and nurturing the sheep and the sheep going and doing the ministry within the body and also outside of the church. That they're actively sharing their faith. That there's at least somebody there championing championing um, evangelism or outreach or missions. So verse 12 Tells us that the fourfold or fivefold ministry that exists to equip the saints for the work of service, we can conclude these things. It is not the leadership's job to do all the ministry. Do you see that? It is our job to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's our primary calling. It's to help equip you to be the ministers. There, I wasn't sure I was going to share it, but I'm going to share it. This past week, we too in our D group have been looking at uh, a, a lot of Scripture. And we're also reading a book by Robbie Gallaty called Growing Up. And in the book, he tells the this story. This is, this is, a, min, this is a, mystery, um, a ministry myth. He says this, when Mr. Jimmy, a friend, and elderly church member, was admitted into the hospital for a back procedure, I had prayer with him at the hospital before his surgery. Two weeks later, someone stopped me after the Sunday service with these words, Mr. Jimmy is upset with you because no one visited him since his procedure. Surprised, I replied, well, that's not true. Uh, Three people visited him over the past two weeks. The day after the surgery, my associate pastor spent time at the hospital with him. Later that week, a deacon visited with him, and the following week, another person spent the afternoon with him. I stopped by his house after church to get to the bottom of this misunderstanding, and as I walked in the door, I asked him, Mr. Jimmy, how are you doing? Not good, answered Mr. Jimmy. Not good? Puzzled, I asked, why is that? He proceeded to explain that the source of his discouragement was that he had not been visited since his surgery. While I lovingly corrected his confusion by highlighting the fact that Jonathan saw my associate pastor in the hospital, Todd visited later that week, and Ted stopped by his home prior to the Sunday service, He, he replied, no, pastor, you didn't visit me. This manner of thinking, prominent in many churches today, is what Larry Osborne labeled the holy man myth. The holy man myth is the idea that the pastors and clergy somehow have a more direct line to God. It cripples a church because it overburdens pastors and underutilizes the gifts and anointing of everyone else. It mistakenly equates leadership gifts with superior spirituality. Left uncorrected, this myth will paralyze people in the pews. I agree. So it's not leadership's job to do all the ministry. We are to equip you to do the ministry. Now, we do that partially by modeling it. I mean, not too long ago, I remember, Trevor, when I went to the hospital, I invited you to join me. Eric's done that too with you. Um, We model what we want you and expect that, that God expects you to do. We should also then be helping you find and use your gifts in service to Christ in this body. And we should be training you to share the gospel with people few weeks ago at our elders forum, we talked about the fact that this year, that's going to be an emphasis for us, that we believe God is calling us to be better shepherds and to help equip you more effectively for works of service. And this is why. It takes every single one of us working together, playing the right instruments in tandem with one another to have a healthy church. I like what Bill Hall in the Discipleship Making um, uh, Pastor book said this. He says, The first Reformation took the word of God exclusively out of the hands of the clergy and put it into the hands of the people. The second Reformation is to get the ministry exclusively out of the hands of the clergy and into the hands of the people where it rightly belongs. So when the entire church is equipped and released for ministry, the body will be built up. It will be healthier. It will be more unified and more fruitful. Then and only then will verse 13 become a reality. But more on that next week. So how many fiddle players do we have here this morning? Second fiddle players. Second, French horns, flutes. Some of you here are using your gifts. That's wonderful. Some of you may be neglecting it. Some of you may not even know what your spiritual gift is. That's okay. We will help you discover it. We will help you use it the way God intended you to use it, to find your place of service. And, and by the way, let me give you one other word of caution. We have to be careful we don't hide behind our spiritual gifts. Sometimes, you know, you're asked to serve in some capacity. You, Sorry, nursery's not my gift. Setup is not my gift. Cleaning toilets is not my gift. Well, you know what, it's not mine either. But it's gotta be done. And the interesting thing is, is that oftentimes we find our gifts as we serve. Just this past week, um, um, I hope she doesn't mind me picking on her, but um, you know, Cindy Landis was over here, and we were talking about you know, spiritual gifts. And you know, she spent how many years doing student ministry? This might be dangerous. I might be putting you on Eric's radar screen. <laughs> 15 years. But, but I think if I remember, you, you said that you never thought about that. And it was just when you stepped into that role and God began to use you, next thing you know, you did it for 15 years. So sometimes we don't know what our gifts are until we step out in faith. Well, listen, in a few minutes, we're gonna give everybody an opportunity to respond to this message. For now, I just want you to know you have been gifted to serve. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the wonderful gifts that you have given to us, that your church might be whole and complete, that we might be unified even amidst the diversity that exists because of the gifts that you have given to us. Lord God, I pray that you would continue to do a deep work in our hearts, that we would um, be eager, eager to um, find a place of service to discover our gifts and to use them for um, your glory and the good of the church. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.